What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 123, I'm speaking with David Shane. Learn about David's memories growing up in South Africa during a divided time for the country, the influences of his father, a businessman and mother, a piano teacher, and his two older brothers. I asked Dave about his move to Australia in the 80s, or God's country as he calls it. You may be aware that he founded Comtech, Australia's first unicorn, but what he may not know is the story behind it, especially having a young family and being new in Australia. Dave was candid about his biggest regret, how he's made career decisions, the meaning of success, how he's managed to build a knack for understanding people quickly and maintaining high quality relationships with leaders in business, sports, politics, and more. And I couldn't release this episode without asking Dave some of the hard questions about venture capital and his fund OIF, including best in class investor relationships, OIF and the US market, his unfiltered advice to founders in this uncertain climate, and what would he do as a career path if he was 30 again? It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. David Chain, welcome to the show. Hey, Vadit. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. You know, I was doing some research prior to this where I Googled your name and there was this picture of you from when you were 30 years old. And I must say, you don't look a whole lot different. What's the secret? <laughs> Do, doing these doing these podcasts over Zoom makes it a whole lot easier to look better. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure. I try and stay fit and uh, I don't drink a lot. So maybe that's uh, probably not a bad recipe. Yeah, and we will talk about that. That's been one of the things I've been told is you're into your triathlons and your Sunday bike clubs. So we will chat about that. Let's start, let's start with some fun facts, Dave, to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? So I was born in uh, Johannesburg in South Africa in 1960 and uh, emigrated to Australia in uh, 1986 and have yeah, happily lived in Sydney uh, since 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 then so yeah very happy and lucky to be living in australia and what was your first job and what do you do now so my first job probably goes back i started really really early i I loved always loved selling loved being with people my dad was in the clothing industry and uh i used to work at his at his factory selling suits from when i was probably about 12 and then i worked in a um a men's outfitting store. It was called Cyril's Wardrobe, and I was—I was a really little guy. I was one of those, one of those kids who developed really, really late. And I grew, yeah, you know, probably only after school. And I used to come up selling these suits in the, 
yeah, I saw this little little kid coming up, and I always like to be the best sales salesperson on a on a Saturday morning. So yeah, I was always I guess involved in the sales side, and uh, yeah, never stopped never stopped selling from from those early days. And how would you describe your role now? I mean, some people could say VC is sales. Well, I always think you're selling. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, yeah, money's a commodity, and uh, there's tons of of capital available in the Australian ecosystem, and and you know, Australia today is recognised as a as a as a really you know, successful innovation powerhouse on the world stage. So there's capital coming in from you know from the US, from other you know from 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 Asia. So. Yeah, founders definitely have a choice in where they get the cash from. And we, yeah, we, when a founder's pitching to us, we also see ourselves as pitching to them to let them know why we the best, the best VC that they should, yeah, take the check from. Mm. And Dave, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? You know, I think there's, People who fly under the radar, who make massive differences to companies. Actually, one of them, I guess you spoke to, uh, was Dave Jacobson, who's someone I've worked mm. with for many years. But if you go and take somebody like a Gerard Florian, who today is actually the, the chief technology officer at um, ANZ Bank. And Gerard worked with me for many, many years. And uh, Dave Gonski um, actually asked me if I'd sit on an advisory board at ANZ technical advisory board on ANZ Bank. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I said to Dave, I just don't feel I have the technical capability that I had you know, when I was in the, you know, in, literally in the weeds. And I said, I do know somebody who's not a, na- he's not a name brand because you know, Gerard wasn't a CEO or a director or whatever I said, but he's a really awesome guy. And with a heap of knowledge, and uh, and I think Gerald would be a great addition to your advisory board. And uh, about eighteen months later, Dave Gonski, who had met Gerald, obviously really liked him. Dave phoned me up and said, "You were right about Gerald. Everybody loves working with him on the advisory board. Do I think Gerald could be the CTO of of the bank?" And uh, I said, "Look, Gerald's never run a team the size of." of the banks, you know, the technical team that you know, I think about 6,000 people across different geographies. I said, but I know Gerard's always been an, you know, a phenomenal team player. And if he surrounds himself with the right people, uh, I, I think Gerard's capable of, of, of anything. And I think probably five or six years later, you know, Gerard is still the CTO of ANZ Bank. And I feel there are many, many people who who may have been or may be a number two or number three in a company that could easily, you know, easily step up to to that CEO role. Mm. I, I said to Dave when we spoke, I said, if someone blindfolded me, I wouldn't know if it's David Shane or David Jacobson because you both sound so similar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm better looking than him. He's smarter. <laughs> Dave, I want to take our listeners back to your sunrise, your childhood, and, and I'm sorry I'm going to jog your memory a bit here, but tell us about your memories from Johannesburg. What was the influence of the environment and family? So we lived a very sheltered, I'm embarrassed to say, um, a very sheltered existence in South Africa. You know, being white in South Africa was, was yeah, 
It's, uh, you know, you could go to a public school and the, the facilities that were available at public schools were absolutely incredible. You know, and as you get older, yeah, where I am today, you know, you say if the GDP of a country is 100 million and you've got 40 million people in the country, but you, you're only really investing in 4 million people, it's really easy to make sure that you've got amazing, amazing school system and, and hospital system, yeah, education and hospital and infrastructure for, for the 4 million people. Um, but it was at the expense of, of the majority. And, uh, but as I say, you know, we grew up in South Africa. I lived in an area that was probably about three kilometers from a township called Alex Alexandra Township. Yeah, we, yeah, we were middle class. Um, yeah, we had a half an acre in South Africa, which was extremely normal. It's nothing like what, what, what it would be here in a, in a nice area and three kilometers away there was this area with you know shanty town no electricity you know in some cases no no running you know no, no running water and it actually took me to go and visit the apartheid museum i actually have a a friend uh, who was actually my brother's good friend and neighbor of ours who i really do respect because you know i can never say i supported the system but i can i can say embarrassing i do i did nothing to to resist the system yeah because there were there were major consequences there were people who were yeah people who were in solitary confinement for six years six months or jailed for many many years but i had a friend of mine uh norman Minoyam, who actually is a judge in south africa today and uh he actually he actually joined the resistance where he actually defended um political prisoners and literally put his life at risk had his house firebombed and uh and when i did go back to south africa so ironically i sold my company to a south african company it was absolutely i had no idea who dimension data were they just knocked on my door one day and said they wanted to buy the company i went back to south africa and norman said you should go to the apartheid museum and uh he, i said how long should i go there for he said about two hours and uh, I got a driver because I was a little bit scared. I hadn't been back to South Africa for so long and you worry about crime and whatever. And I got a driver for two hours and I was so disappointed because I could have literally spent the day there. And I walked through this museum thinking, I cannot believe that <laughs> I lived in this country in the circumstances that I did. I mean, there were little things that you sort of took for granted. I remember when I was probably six or seven going to Judah, I sat at a bus stop undercover on a bench and literally across the road, there was a bus stop for, yeah, for, um, for blacks. No, no place to sit, no shelter. So man, man, we were bucketing down with rain, yeah, uh, boiling hot, nowhere to sit, no matter. And uh, you just took it for granted. And to be honest, the, the only thing that gave me some yeah, consolation was when I read uh, Nelson Mandela's book, which was called The Long, Road to, to, the Long Walk to Freedom. I'll never forget. He said, I can't recall when I became politicized. But he said, I think it was when I was born. He said, I was born in a black hospital and I then went on a black bus to a black township. And that's how we grew up. So we just took it for granted. You just took it for granted that this was your bus stop. That, you know, this was where you could sit. These were the parks where you could play. These were the beaches that you could go to. And that's how we grew up. And as I say, at... Um, yeah, I always say the best thing about Australia is our kids have grown up colorblind. And uh, yeah, and I think that's a, a phenomenal. I think Australia is an unbelievably multicultural country. And, uh, and I think Australia's done it 
incredibly well. I, I wonder, David, if you can paint a picture of your family for our listeners. What did your parents do for work? So my dad, as I said, my dad was a chartered accountant by profession. And I think mm. in his day, if you could do the books of a company, you know, you were almost like the hero in the company yeah. because there was no, there were, yeah. So, I, you know, when most kids, when most kids were being told, um, uh, when most kids were asked when they were two or three, what are you going to be? I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a policeman. I'm going to be a nurse. I was going to be an accountant. I think from the day I was born, my dad said, you're going to be an accountant. And uh, so I have two older brothers and all three of us are chartered accountants. And I think the proudest day of my dad's life was when uh, I think we were the first family in South Africa to have a father and three sons as chartered accountants. <laughs> so I did, I did an accounting degree. Um, my mom was a piano teacher. And I always say, you know, probably one of the biggest regrets in my life today is that I, uh, I never took the opportunity to learn a musical instrument. We, we have a beautiful grand piano at home because my, my, my mother's piano. And every time I look at that bloody piano, I think what an idiot I was. So, yeah. It's so funny you say that. My parents, so I've got a younger brother and we growing up were given piano lessons and guitar lessons. And I wish I was more committed to that. I think I had all the support, but but had no focus and determination. So you're right. I think music's a, it's a great stabilizer in today's crazy, chaotic world that we live in. Um, and you mentioned two older brothers. How did that shape you? Did that make you... Like I think a lot of people I spoke to in the research for this talked about how you're a very competitive, driven personality. Do you think that comes from having two older brothers where you had to kind of stand up for yourself? Look, I think I think that my eldest brother is seven years older than me. And I think in, you know, I think in those days, you know, if I look at the relationship that my own boys have, uh, you know, I have a 36-year-old, a 33-year-old and a 26-year-old. Yeah, and I look at the relationship that they have. Yeah, my relationship with my older brother was probably he's the little brother to be seen and not heard. Yeah, yeah. my middle brother, we shared a bedroom and we yeah, we were we were best mates. And I, I don't think we really competed. He was yeah, he, he's six foot four. I was always this little guy, so I was always smart enough to know I could never win a fight. So so yeah, and I think as we got older, you know, when when someone's sixteen and you're you're fourteen. Two years is a huge difference when someone gets to you know, 22 or 23 and you're 21. Yeah, we, you know, we shared friends, we shared everything. So we were, we grew up and I'd say very, very rarely did we, did we argue or fight or whatever. So, and my eldest brother, as I say, he, you know, he was a lot older, but we didn't really spend much time. I, I always say the best thing about Xbox is it's, well, the only good thing I can think about is it's an age leveler. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I really think like yeah, I'd see my my eighteen year old son playing FIFA against my eight year old son, and it, and 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 they could both be you know, my eight year old could be extremely competitive. Back to the episode in a moment. We featured some of the most brightest and relatable minds, including Nikki Shavak, founder of Blackbird Ventures, in episode sixty seven, professional athletes, in former cricket player Ed Cowan and Olympic runner Steve Solomon in episodes 56 and 61, and co-founder of UP, Dom Pim, in episode 90, all there waiting for you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, FIFA, yeah, I mean, that brings back really good memories of, of my younger days as well. And Dave, you talked about growing up in the almost closed society of South Africa. Did you 
travel when you were young? Did you experience the world? Like when did the first urge to perhaps move out of South Africa first start? So I am, yeah, going back as far back as I do, yeah, overseas travel wasn't a, 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 yeah, it was a massive luxury. It was, Mm. yeah, so the first time I actually went overseas was when I actually had to serve in the army. I did national service in South Africa for two years. So I finished school at 17, two years in the army, and uh, I then went to America. It was the first time I'd ever been overseas. I went with two of my really good friends I'm still really, really good mates with today. And that was the first time I ever went to, yeah, went out of South Africa. Um, Probably the big thing for me was when I came to Australia in 1981, I came back with one of the friends I traveled with to um, America. He's a really good friend of mine, Robbie Brosen. Robbie is the founder of Nando's, actually Nando's Chicken, and uh, absolute legend, and we're still best mates to this day. And uh, Robbie and I came here in 1981, and, uh, and we drove up the coast. We came to Sydney, drove up the coast, didn't spend more than an hour and a half in the car every day. Whatever beach we landed on, you know, at, we, we, would, we would spend the evening. And you know, coming from Johannesburg, which is... Yeah, it's inland, not on the coast. In the afternoon, we would watch cricket. And in South Africa, you have to understand there was no international sport because of apartheid. Mm. In 1981, 1982, the West Indies and Pakistan were in Australia. Um, It was a golden era of the West Indian cricket team, Australian cricket team. And at night, you could go to a pub anywhere in Australia. You could go to an RSL or whatever and and, spend a night in a motel for 20 bucks and... Yeah, that's what we did every day. It was beach in the morning, cricket in the afternoon, pub in the evening, and uh, the next day back on the road for an hour and a half, came back and said, this is God's own country, and this is, <laughs> this is where I want to live one day. And, uh, and I've never regretted that, that decision. So, you're, you're making life sound very easy in Australia for all our listeners who are listening in from overseas, Dave. I think sometimes life can be hard, especially in the industries we're in, where it's not always beach and sunshine, right? Um, it's definitely, yeah, I would say probably the, yeah, one of the biggest hurdles in Australia, especially in Sydney, is, is yeah, the, the cost of getting into the housing market. You know, that's definitely, so as you say, it's, uh, um, but I think, I think what I would say to any listener from overseas, I think probably the best, the best advice I could give anybody is what I, I pretty much gave myself is the day I arrived, I never looked back. I only looked forward. Yeah, you can always look back and say, I left my family, I left my friends, I left my network, I could have had this. I made up my mind I was never going to look back and I was only going to say, how lucky am I to live here and I'm going to make every opportunity to give myself the best chance of success. And uh, so you're right, there's no no decision that you can ever make in life that only has has pros and leaving South Africa in spite of the political climate, you know, was, yeah, had its, had had some cons. My parents still live there. My friends that I've grown up with all my life, um, you know, were still living in South Africa. And uh, but I believe that the pros outweighed the cons, and I was never going to never going to focus on the negatives. I, I want to go into that period, Dave, in 1986, as you mentioned, where I think you came with your wife, Colleen, yeah. and I believe you had an eight-month-old son in oh, yes. Jared. He was he was really young and. 
from what I've been told, you you created Comtech within a year of moving to Sydney. Tell us about the mindset you were in. Like, what was I often ask guests about success at eighteen, and I think you spoke about accounting. But you've come to a new country. You've got a wife. You've got a young son. It's the eighties where tech, and you spoke about this in other podcasts. Tech is still uncertain, and there's a lot of unknowns. What was your mindset? Did you just go in with that just innate belief, going, "I'm going to make this work"? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, when you're young, that you, you know, one of the benefits of being young is you you're naive and you don't see you don't see some of the things that older people see. You know, it's even yeah, you know, you go and take you go and take a baby and you leave a baby walking yeah you know, off a off a table or something. The baby doesn't know you fall off that table. It's going to it's it, it's it's going to be sore. And I went in, yeah, and I've said before, and it's in, in the book that I've written, yeah, I was lucky enough to be on a job that I was earning $2,000 a month. Mm. And the opportunity cost of starting was extremely low. You know, and I think that was probably, yeah, aside from marrying my wife, aside from coming to Australia, you know, the luckiest break I had was I didn't have a good job. Because mm. if I didn't have a good job, it would have been unbelievably risky for me to make that jump of saying, should I, yeah, should I risk giving up this decent salary with a wife and a, you know, and a young kid versus I just thought I'll back myself and say, let me give myself six months. If, I, if I'm still earning $2,000 a month, then I think I'm good enough to go get a job in the, in the industry. And luckily enough, I didn't, I didn't have to. But, you know, I think it's called golden handcuffs for good reason. Mm. What happens is people go and work at a, you know, a Macquarie Bank or at a Google or a, you know, an Atlassian and they're getting good salaries and good perks and whatever. And then you think, geez, my opportunity cost is massive to take this, to take this risk of starting you know, something that may or may not work out. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And... I mean, I want to ask you about Comtech and how you started it, because I think you've shared that in the book, and I'll direct listeners to consider buying your book. But I will ask around: what was the highlight from that period with Comtech? What was the was there a six or twelve month period that you look back on that you would love to relive again? I think probably the highlight was so I started yeah on my own in June nineteen eighty seven, and uh, and we were when I say we, I hired my first employee my, that I'd ever hired was a guy, Nathan Sure, He came in January. Um, and uh, then my, actually the, the guy that I dedicated my book to, who unfortunately passed away, Dan Jarzen, joined, I think, in, in March and decided to leave about three or four weeks later because his wife said, it's too risky for you to go and work in a startup. So my brother came on. And uh, so when I say we... Yeah, we were doing business and paying the bills because our overheads were unbelievably low. And I think that's one of the challenges lots of startups, we might chat about it later, is I always gave myself the best chance of success. I always thought if I hire a person, how much more do I have to sell just to pay the bills? And, uh, and, uh, but I never felt we had a business because at the time I was grey marketing Novell. Um, yeah, grey marketing, by the way, is different to pirating. I was just, I was bringing it in from a, a, a US distributor. And, uh, and in March 1989, Novell appointed me as their distributor. And that was like literally hitting the jackpot. Like I remember saying to my wife, 
I'm sitting on a gold mine. I just don't have the tools to tap it. And she says, what, what's the gold mine? I said, it's called Navelle. Yeah, and if somebody said to me, David, here's $5 million. You can either have $5 million to start a company or we'll give you no money, but the, you'll become the second distributor for Navelle. I would have taken the Navelle distribution agreement any day of the week because, yeah, Navelle was the hottest company in the world at the time. And I knew I could build a great business around that one product. And I think that really was when I, yeah, when I knew that I had a business, that I knew that, that, that we had the opportunity, if we executed properly, we could become the major player in Australia in the, in the field that we operated in. And I have been told that I think you exited Comtech in your early 30s. You had that exit. Is that right? So, so the, my final, because I did, um, we did um, sell down to Macquarie Bank in 1992 and then Dimension Data took a minority share in 1996, but a full exit in 2000. I just, I literally just turned 40 and then I left the company in, 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 when I was 41. Yeah, so by many, by many measures, people would say that you're still young in, in life. Did you... Did you feel successful? Like, I don't know what the exit valuation was or what the numbers were. How did you feel in life? Did you go, great, I left South Africa, that young baby wife, and I've come to a new country and look at what I've built. And, and what was your mindset at that point? So I did feel unbelievably proud and, and not just because, you know, financial, anyone who says they've started a business and financial success is not, you know, that's one of the reasons you do start a company that, you know, mm. you're risking everything to save this succeeds. Yeah, I may never have to work again in my life. But I think what what I'm really most proud of is that yeah, we really built a reputation in the marketplace where we were absolutely unbelievably respected by our staff, unbelievably respected by our customers and by our business partners. We we built an amazing company that yeah, to this day I sometimes see people and they say the best company I've ever worked with. Yeah, and I left, as I say, twenty-two years ago now. And that makes me really proud. It makes me really proud that there's people who worked in the company who, yeah, I, I allocated 15% of, of the equity of the company. And this is going back to, yeah, 1990 to our staff. And I'm proud of it that there were people who, yeah, who were able to walk away and buy a house and, uh, and say, you know, because of the, the, the effort I put in at Comtech, I have something to show for it. I'm really, and I always was, unbelievably proud of that. But, but when, when I did sell, I think, you know, you, you think you're going to have this massive, this massive exit and, uh, yeah, and you're going to be elated. And, of course, I was happy, but it's every time we did either sell down or, or exited completely, it was a bit of an anticlimax, and that's the, that's the truth. Because, yeah, I missed the camaraderie and I missed what we built. Even though, yeah, it was never easy. You know, yeah. Someone once said to me, "Dave, I'm worried you look tired." And I said to him, "You should worry when I don't look tired. As long as, <laughs> as, long as I care about the company, I'm going to be thinking all the time. You know, when I'm awake, when I'm sleeping, what can we be doing better?" So. We talk a lot about magic moments on the show, David, and what he just said reminds me of, um, we had a guest called Mike Overell in episode 104, um, and he built a HR startup in Australia and then had an exit and he was evaluating his next option. 
And he looked to adventure for a bit, but he really had that operational drive and he wanted to go back and be an operator. So he joined Lyft and he now lives in San Francisco working at Glass Dojo. And I'm curious about your journey in, in the, in, at that point when you stepped away from Comtech. I imagine you probably had a lot of opportunities. You could have been an advisor, coach, board member, angel investor, or go back and be an operator at a startup or a scale-up. What what was your decision making hierarchy to decide on venture capital as your next as your next move? So, so I'd say that did one of one of the big mistakes that I did make is I didn't actually plan for my for my my life after Comtech, hmm. and uh, it was just yeah. And it's funny because I uh, I really didn't make a decision to to leave the company. Uh, my wife took me, it was my 40th birthday, and uh, I still remember the date. My birthday's in October, and on August the 23rd, my wife arrived at my office, and uh, she never, ever came to the office, and she was sitting at my desk with my PA, lovely lady, Jenny Silveri, and uh, she gave me this huge envelope of all oh, divorce papers, <laughs> and I said, what, what are you doing here? And uh, she said, I've got your birthday present. So I opened my birthday present. And uh, as I say, my birthday was only in October. And it said, we're going to Bali. I said, ah, did you come and check with Jen when my diary's free? She said, no, no, we're going now. (laughs) And we literally left within an hour. And I always said the two women I was supposed to trust most in my life were bullshitting me because Jenny had filled my diary with all these random appointments. I still remember saying... (laughs) She's, Jen, you've got to give me a breather. But anyway, but I went to Bali and uh, and not once did I ever say to my wife, when I come back, I want to leave. And uh, by chance, we moved from these crappy offices. We had these offices just above Wynyard Station. We were hot desking. like. But I sat right by the front door, literally. So I could see people walking in and I'd say, hey, Dave, what happened? How do we go on the Woolworths deal? And I knew exactly what was happening. In the week that I went away, um, we moved to these amazing offices. Really, like we were, yeah, it looked probably like what you'd expect a Canva or an Atlassian office to look today. And as I say, I'm going back to 2000. It was in the old Bushels Tea building. And I don't know if you've ever been to Mr. Wong, which mm. is a beautiful building with those beautiful timber, yeah, timber beams and timber ceilings. And we had tea hoppers, which we used as meeting rooms. And But I was put behind this. I called it Main Street because I was sitting behind the screen with um, the CFO. We had a, a general manager at the time and a lady was helping us with, with mergers and acquisitions. And I just, didn't feel, I just didn't feel close to the action anymore. And I just said, that's it. I'm done. I've lost the value that I add to this business. And, uh, and I resigned without thinking, what am I going to do next? And uh, it was actually pretty debilitating doing nothing. You, know, you go from a million miles an hour to you know, your phone doesn't stop ringing to your phone never rings. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's what happens with a lot of sports people. They, they quit their career and they haven't planned the next stage or the next part of their life. And, uh, and I would definitely have fallen into that category. And, uh, I really stumbled into, into VC and yeah, it's, it's, easy to look back now, you know, there's certain things that happen in your life. Like I was a naughty kid at school. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. If I didn't live in South Africa, by the way, I probably 
wouldn't have been even accepted into university. My, my marks were that bad. And, uh, you know, at university, if you were white, it was literally free. And I remember my brother telling my dad, why is he sending me to university? I'm not varsity ma university material. I wasn't sure what he was worried about because it wasn't coming out of his inheritance. It was all free. But I remember finishing the army and I was 19. I just turned 19 and I thought, yeah, I'm old and I've done nothing with my life. And it was the first time that I actually, yeah, yeah, buckled down and never failed the subject at university. And the same thing happened, you know, you look back now and when I was, you know, I was, I was 40 when I left uh, Comtech or Dimension Data and I thought I'm old now. I'm not, I don't have the energy to do a startup. But now being 62, I look at myself and so say like, what were you thinking? You could have easily done another another startup, and I should have. I just just thought I was burnt out, thought I couldn't do it again. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't have regrets, but that would be. So I, I stumbled upon, I stumbled into VC probably a year after I started. Um, there was a guy that I put a little bit of money into his business. I always uh, fluked it once in my life. My job was to to keep my money that I'd made, not think, geez, that was easy. I could do it all over again. And, uh, yeah, I think I put in $25,000 into a company called Holly. Holly in those days was, believe it or not, Holly, please call Vedette on the mobile. <laughs> yeah, the founder sent me his business plan that he sent to me. If I sent that to you, you'd say, this has to be for Alexa, for Siri. It was mm. probably just 15 years ahead of its time. But, Lance was the, the, one of the co-founders, having problems with his, with his co-founder and said, Dave, could I, could I help you? Could I help him? Which I did, which included firing the one co-founder. And I went to help Lance as, yeah, probably like a mentor, as an executive chairman. And probably six months after helping Lance, that was 18 months after I left um, Comtech, Lance said, looked at me, and I'll never forget, looked at me and said, Dave, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And I looked at him and I said, Lance, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And because that really shaped my career post-Comptic, it gave me a purpose again, which I loved. I loved mentoring founders and, and, uh, and yeah, just dabbled with startups um, yeah, from 2001, 2002, and, and then really did it properly in 2016 when the Turnbull government changed uh, and Wyatt, who you've had on your show, and I think you've had Malcolm on the show as well, and I think they both deserve a huge amount of credit for what they've done for the, you know, the innovation in Australia. But I, um, I, uh, yeah, together with my business partners Jeff Levy and Jerry Stessel, we we could see what was happening in innovation, and and we set up the early stage venture capital fund. So dabbling, yeah, for 15 years, doing it professionally, if you want to call it. Um, yeah, uh, for the last seven years, and really love love doing what I do. I'd be thanks for sharing that story, Dave. I'd be curious if you were thirty today, would you would you go into VC as a career path? I think you've really got to do what you want to do, and uh, yeah. So if you say to me, would I go into VC? I think for me, the operational experience has given me a huge a huge competitive advantage in terms of. I'm not a yeah. When I look at myself and yeah, Jeff Levy, who's yeah my business partner, the way I always define our roles, I'm the entry guy and Jeff's the exit guy. Yeah, my job for the fund is if yeah if a founder's pitching to us, 
my job is to make sure that founder says, I want, I want, I want to take that check from, yeah, from OIF. If when that founder is ready to exit the company, yeah, there's no one better than Jeff to help to help sell that company. I can say that from personal experience. Jeff was my corporate advisor, and uh, yeah, we have a team of people, yeah, Jerry and Lawrence, who you've met, who mm-hmm. are way more qualified in terms of building, yeah, of of writing up the term sheets and helping, yeah, helping on the exit side. So, so. I, I, for me, the operational experience has been a, a, a huge value add for for venture. But I will say we have a yeah, um, yeah, a lady who works with us who said yeah she wants to work, loves the opportunity of working with OIF. But should I maybe get some operational experience first? And I said to Izzy, I said if you want my advice, don't plan your life. Like if you really want to work here and you think you eventually want to be in venture. Yeah, if you decide to leave in five years, what you're going to learn with us, you'll be able to, you're, those skills you'll be able to bring to, yeah, into an operational role. And whenever you give a younger person advice, you always worry, well, I hope, I hope that advice was, was good and relevant advice. And, it, and you're not going to believe it, but literally the next day, there was an article in the Fin Review, the new CEO of Uber, Dara, I forget his last name, mm. but was interviewed and it said, if you had to advise your younger self, what would it be? He said, not to plan my life, to take opportunities as they come. It made me feel a whole lot better. So, yeah, I, I, love, I love venture because I think for me, I love, I love mentoring and, uh, and working, with, yeah, working with founders. I feel that's what, what my purpose is. But it doesn't mean that that's your purpose or somebody else's purpose. And I think it's, it's really important to know what you want to do in your life and it's important to know where you can add value um, to the people that you're serving. Back to the episode in a moment. If you're a new listener and wondering what is the Curiosity Center, this podcast is one of our premium products but we have more including the Association Series newsletter, Seven Star Events and Investment. Access the Curiosity Center today, the platform for on-demand intelligence with the world's best. I want to jump around a bit here, Dave, because I want to ask you a few questions about OIF, but I want to talk about some of your traits. And one of the traits that you mentioned to me when we spoke a couple of weeks ago and all the people that I did research with was that you've got this knack to understand people in the first five minutes. And often the founders you're speaking to are half your age. Um, I mean, I think the Carter founder, you met him when he was 22, if I understand correctly. Unpack that for us, if, if, you, if you can. What what do you ask these people? whether it's founders or just human beings in general in that first catch-up? And, and what are those kind of internal radars for you that you can pick up on bullshit versus authenticity? How do you, how do you assess that? That's a tough question to ask me, but because to be honest, I'd say it's the one skill I have. I think I'm, I've been a really good judge of, of people really, really quickly without looking at CVs. And that's actually what I do in venture capital. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the stage that we invest at, there's very little data. You know, you, you're meeting a founder and, uh, and the founder would have, you know, maybe, you know, where we invest, you know, they've got a product, they've got a few, cust- you know, a few paying customers and you're basically saying, would I back this founder? Would I, would I commit $3 million to, you know, three to $5 million to this founder? Is this person going to be able to attract it to, you know, be willing to be part of a team. 
are they going to be willing to are they going to know how to sell to those big enterprise customers yeah if you're going to take sam at casada so i think it's just something that i've i've uh it's it's the one skill i'd say i have and I, you know i don't think you can learn it at uni or whatever uh, i had there's lots and lots of skills that i don't have so i don't want to sit here on your show thinking like i'm a yeah but but i think it's served me well in my career because i've hired phenomenal people you spoke to one of them and i'd even say with my wife you know my wife was 19 and i'll never forget she came to south africa for um her brother's wedding and uh i asked her to come somewhere with me and uh she was this young girl sort of pretty girl and i asked her to come and she phoned her mom and said to her mom mom is it okay if i don't come to uncle jack today and i thought wow most of the girls i was taking out at that time would have said mom i'm not coming to uncle jack today and it was just that little thing that i thought what good values and what respect she has and and yeah i hope she'd say the same but i can look back 38 years later and i'd say it was that initial decision that and i won't say that was the only thing i didn't but but it was just that little thing that sort of made me feel this is this is someone that i know would be a great mother and a great wife and it's turned out i was right to stretch that people point i think something you spoke about earlier is you didn't say it but i i was my takeaway is that you've built all these really good relationships not just with founders but with business leaders you mentioned Malcolm Turnbull Dave Gonski i've heard you talk about the myob founders in other podcasts i think you know um you mentioned the nando's founder as well how do you how do you cultivate these relationships i think that's something i connect with you on i'm a very curious person and i've been fortunate to get to know a lot of high flyers that have given me their time and supported me but one thing i struggle with is constantly wanting to be in their presence but they're all busy people and i someone said to me a while back they said only reach out when you have a good question and when you want to actually ask something don't just have a coffee with someone for the sake of having a coffee yep. i don't know if you agree with that but how do you for people that you respect and look up to how do you spend time with them so so one thing i'd say i'm not a networker i only mix with people like i i am i'm really proud to say that yeah you know, the people that are asked to sit on our board So over the years for example I had you know first of all Bob Dwyer was yeah you know, an external director Bob Bob was the coach of the Wallabies in 1991 when Australia won the World Cup mm. and uh yeah Bob left in 1995 to left Australia to go and coach a rugby team in the UK and yeah replaced Bob with Ian Chappell who I'd met when I was 6 years old in South Africa right and um neither bob nor ian sat on our board because bob was the coach of the wallabies and ian had been one of the most successful arguably the most successful australian cricket captain they sat on our board because we shared the same values and and uh and the fact that they could bring a different perspective to our board was was the bonus but they weren't there because of who they were they were there they were there because of the people they were as opposed to the positions that they that they had held or commanded and uh, and I'm proud to say that I'm still friends with both Bob and Ian to this to this day and uh, yeah the same with Bob Mansfield I met Bob Mansfield uh yeah when he was working at Optus and really really liked Bob I thought well wow, this is yeah same management style that I had except Bob had yeah been CEO of McDonald's was the founding CEO of Optus and yeah Bob became our chairman and uh yeah 
not because he was the CEO of Optus before and the CEO of McDonald's, because he was an awesome guy with similar values who could then bring all the experience of building and growing a company to our organization. So I, I really believe you know, Dave Gonski is someone that I, I, I really admire him as a, as a human being. And that's why I think our relationship, it's a mutually, I think hopefully Dave would say the same of me. It's not, it's not what can I get out of Dave or what can I get out of Bob? It's, 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 it's mutual respect and hopefully we can both, yeah, I'm, I'm flattered that Bob, uh, that Dave Gonski phoned me and said, Dave, I'm looking for someone to sit on the advisory board. Yeah, it's not just a one-way street. How can we help each other? And, and that's what relationships are about. So I'm not the kind of person that would ever want to just try and network just for the sake of saying uh, I was at this function and I met all these people. It's, I, want to, I want to be, especially as I get older, I want to be with people that I want to be with. And it's not what can I get out of them. It's I want to be with people and then can I add value to them and can they add value to me? Dave, I'd love to spend some time on OIF and, and maybe go beneath the hood on OIF a bit because a lot of our listeners are founders and one of the things Lawrence and I were chatting last night in prep for this, um, and he agreed with me. I said, maybe some founders don't know this, is that you've got really good relationships with the US investors, and, and generally, I think OIF lead rounds early on, but then you bring in co-investors from the US yep. at Series A, Series B, Series C stage, and really help accelerate a lot of these Aussie companies. Can you unpack that for us? Like, Do you think that's a unique advantage that founders should be more aware of when they're taking early stage capital from Australian VCs about the future follow-on rounds and what that opens up in terms of markets? Look, I, I, I don't want to say our strategy is right and yeah, some of the other VCs are wrong. Everyone's got their... Yeah, but what we believe is getting... Yeah, if you're, and I'll say if you're an Australian founder, yeah, if, you, if you're a listener from somewhere outside of, uh, outside of Australia, working with a VC that can provide more than just a check to help you in those early stages. You know, those are the critical stages where you, you, you're always going to need support. It never gets easier. You know, it's a, you know, businesses always have different challenges at different stages. But we, we think for us, the way our model, what's worked really, really well for us is we think that the first check for an Australian founder should come from Australia, from a, from a VC that can really you know, help you scale that business to the next level. Yeah, I always say Atlassian is Atlassian because they dominate the US, not because they dominate Australia. You know, they dominate Australia because they dominate the US. And, you know, the US is, yeah, probably 50% of the global market. So if you're building a generic product like a Jira or a Canva or a Wise Tech, yeah, and you're going to be a dominant player on a global scale, you, you have to crack the US. It's as simple as that. You know, you think of every major product out there um, and, uh, you yeah, the ones that have succeeded, the ones that have, 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 you know, have succeeded in the US. So we think the next best place for a founder to get their next check is from a US VC. So we like to, we like to follow on the second round, but we, we would prefer the lead investor to come out of the US because... That business, yeah, it's like what happened with Casada. That yeah, they have an awesome investor uh, in ten eleven, and mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, they've been hugely supportive of helping them grow and scale their company uh, in the US. 
And you know, the same happened with InstaCluster level equity. Um, you know, you know, put in the next check after us and really were instrumental in helping helping the InstaCluster team scale the business in, in the world's biggest market. So yeah, that's our model. And uh, and uh, you know, it's worked really, really well for us uh, in terms of, and when I say worked really well for us, you know, I always say we have, we have two customers. On the one hand, we have our portfolio companies who we sincerely see our founders as our customers. And on the other hand, we have our investors who've entrusted us with their capital. And, uh, you know, so we, we have to deliver it, you know, yeah, we have to deliver great returns for our investors and somehow we've got to keep both customers happy. And so when I say it's served us well, both our customers yes, seem pretty happy right now in terms of what what we deliver for both you know, a founder at the one hand and for an investor at the other. Yeah, and I mean, for founders, you might not be aware. I think you've returned, you've had four exits to date and you've returned a significant amount of capital and, and helped founders have a better life. Um financially so kudos to you and the team for doing that you talked about lps i think that's a lesser spoken about topic on podcasts or generally in the aussie ecosystem and i think it's public knowledge that you're an lp in certain early stage funds and of course you've raised capital for your own fund from other lps can you pull back the curtains on what what in your mind is best in class lp gp relationships yeah and maybe i'm being naive but i think i think in LPs are unbelievably easy to please. If you if you if they give you a dollar and you give them back a yeah a, a great return, your LPs are going to be pretty happy. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, and I say that as not just as a GP of my own fund, but yeah, I'm an investor in some private equity funds, and I'm an investor in in as you say a couple of the, the of the early stage um, VCs like you know like Jellix and. Uh, mm. So and the Archangel guys and uh, and uh, you know who are all awesome awesome founders and that's you know different scale where they invest earlier than us and they do a terrific job of really mentoring the founders to help them get you know, in some cases from yeah you know, yeah you know, product market fit helping them with their revenue model and we love being that next check so as I say there's there's a place for everybody in the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, so LPs, our LPs are all high net wealth. We have no institutional money. And uh, sometimes we do use our LPs where they have domain expertise in a certain area. We may get them to sit on the board or to work as a mentor to a founder. So we feel that can really, and some of our, 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 our LPs really like that because they, they may have yeah, exited or may have been in a large company and, uh, and are looking for something to do. And and yeah, I think it was on on the podcast you did with Wyatt. Generally, people love helping people. Yeah, you know, that's generally, mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's you know people like saying, yeah, I I I made a difference today. And sometimes a bit of experience, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, you can have a cup of coffee with someone and they say, wow, I never thought of that, and you feel so good about yourself. You think, geez, that was yeah. Maybe to the mentor was common sense, but to the person you're giving the mentee says, wow, and you feel good. You know, generally, as I say, yeah, most people want to be, want to be supportive. And I think, uh, yeah, so our LPs sometimes can assist in that, in that area. But, but our job for our LPs, including myself in our own fund, is, yeah, we just were, 
yeah, got a really high rating as one of the top VCs in Australia. Yeah, I won't use the word that I would use in our own office, but I'll say, yeah, stuff the accolades, <laughs> show me the money. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's no use getting all awards without, without delivering returns. And that's what I think our LPs want and what, what, what they should expect because that's, yeah, they have lots of, yeah, they have lots of choices who, you know, with, you know, where they can allocate their, their capital to as well. So we need mm. to make sure that we, we deliver. Mm. Dave, if I, if you had to visualize a room of Hall of Fame investors, and let's say you're one of those Hall of Fame investors in that room, and you can pick four others to be in the room with you, who would be the other four Hall of Fame investors you'd love to be in the room with? Well, I think Rain Ong is definitely in Australia has <laughs> had some amazing success. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to say, yeah, people like Paul Bassett have done. Yeah, incredibly well over a long. Yeah, I think, I think in anything when you look at at you look when you look at success, it's it's continual over performance over an extended period of time. So it's not backing one winner. Yeah, it's like um, uh, just getting old, man. I'm thinking of the bloody. Manchester United coach. When you when, when you look at Alex oh, Ferguson, Alex, Alex Ferguson, yeah, yeah. You, you look at Alex Ferguson's success as a coach. Yeah, Leicester won the Premier League once, never again. Yeah, mm. if you look at what success looks like, it's got to be an extended period of a long period of time. So yeah, I think Paul's had a had a you know really good track record. Jeez, um, I. Uh, I mean, are there any say, overseas? Are there any overseas I, I, investors I have that you've Somebody like Cliff Rosenberg, who you know was mm. on the board of Afterpay, on the board of Nearmap. Yeah, would yeah, those were two of the the best investors. Yeah, probably the two. Yeah, arguably the Afterpay would have been the best the best investment you could ever make in 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 Australian VC, I think. Uh, and uh, well, I I love Ben Horowitz. Um, I love his book. Uh, yeah, it's a book I would recommend that any any founder read. Is the hard thing about the hard thing. So I think yeah, the Andreessen Horowitz guys are, and uh, yeah, I think I think Rulof Brut is an amazing investor, and I think an mm. amazing human being as well. Mm. Yeah, thanks for thanks for that answer. I've tested your memory with a lot of questions, so I'll ask you that present day. I think a lot of founders are going to listen to this and it'll be remiss of me not to ask is what advice would you give founders in today's market? I think there's a lot of perceptions, a lot of just, just talk that's not quite reality. Is there anything that you, and you're, you're in the arena, so you're not a commentator like a lot of other people are at the moment. What, what would you say to founders that are listening to this that are either figuring out what the second act of their business is or are looking to raise funding or some of the conversations you're having? Can you give us some inside knowledge? So I always say I learned more outside of my curriculum at, at uni than what I learned in the curriculum. Probably one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got, I'll never forget, I had a professor, my accounting professor was a guy, Professor McGregor. And, uh, and I'll never forget, he said, the reason so many people go out of business is they don't even know what it costs to open the doors every, every month. They don't even know what their break-even point is. And that was something that literally from the day I started Comtech till the day I left, every time I would hire a person, I'd always think, how much more do I have to sell 
just to pay the bills. And I think if I was a founder today, I'd really become much more in tune with what the numbers are. I would give myself the best chance of success by not, I think there's been a tendency over the really, you know, over the good, you know, over the good times and the glory days when, when, when cash was easy to overhire, to overspend and, uh, and have, and, and basically think that success is getting from one funding round to the next at a higher valuation because you've grown your revenue. And you know, I met some you know, two terrific founders the other day, and they're really growing a nice business. And I said, how's things going? They said, things, yeah, we're building a good business. And I said, are you making money? And they said, they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's definitely, we, we, we obviously expect that when you're investing in, in R&D and building a product in those early days, that there's going to be a period of time where you're not going to make money. And Amazon didn't make money. Google didn't make money. Facebook. But there was always an understanding of how, how they were going to make money and what the path to profitability was going to be. So my advice to a founder would be to really be, to give yourself the best chance of success by keeping your overheads absolutely as low as possible. You know, bootstrap your organization as far as you can. And the second thing I do is, is really, really understand what your unit economics are going to, are and how much you have to grow by to eventually say every widget that I sell, once I get to this number, you know, is going to drop to the bottom line. And that's how I'm going to make a buck because you know, there, is no, there is no company that's ever survived in history that doesn't make a buck and doesn't generate positive cash flow. So you always have to have that in mind of, what what does success look like and is my is my yeah in my day it was my gross profit but are my unit economics going to be good enough for me is it is it realistic that i can sell this number of widgets just to pay the bills and that's what i'd be advising a founder today and would you say there's a just a follow-up question and that some of the founders that i speak to so i do a small amount of angel investing and one of the a lot of founders are now going the complete opposite direction where they're focused so much on burn rate that they've forgotten about growth. Do you think there needs to be a balance of managing that burn rate and unit economics while still growing at a VC rate? I think you have to grow. You, you know, you have to grow. Um, yeah, you're not going to raise capital if you if you say, yeah, I'm, I'm not burning cash, but neither am I growing because any VC is going to want to know that you know, you're investing in a company that is growing, but it's sustainable and profitable growth. You know, it's like somebody said to me the other day, you know, one, of the, one of the benefits of, of you know, if I go and look at our own company, we had people who stayed in our company that I lasted 14 years. We had people who, who, are, who have lasted 30 years. You know, some of the people are still there. But they had many, many different jobs and opportunities because the company was growing, and uh, and yeah, you can only you can only yeah, you, you can only provide those kinds of opportunities in a company that's growing. Otherwise, you know, if you work in a convenience store and there's only going to ever be three people, there's not much room to grow. So if you yeah, you may have to slow your burn and your growth because your runway is that short that you just have to stabilize for a period of time. But any company that's not growing 
will eventually not be able to raise funds as well. So yeah, it's 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 what management is about. It's 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 yeah, I always say you can't afford to be reckless in either direction. And I think over the past couple of years, founders were way too reckless in terms of, of growth at all costs. And at the other extreme, you can't say, I'm not going to grow, but I'll 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 have a business that may not be burning cash, but I'm I'm not growing. You just yeah, you know, ne- neither will neither will survive or, or neither will have an ability to raise capital. You want to be somewhere in the middle where you say, yeah, and that's what yeah, you have to manage short and long at the same time. You know, if you if in the last year people were managing long and say, eventually I'm going to make a buck. I don't know when, but eventually. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that, that's the skill and 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 uh, challenge that the great founders will have. That's all the hard questions I've got, Dave. I've got an easy question now, then we'll close with a rapid fire sprint. Um, you were kind enough to put me in touch with Nikki, one of your founders of, of Range Me, a, a wonderful business. And she had a question that she wants to ask you. She said, what is a successful life for you today, given all the success you've achieved? And she talked about it. She shared a story that you've shared with her that you were the happiest when you moved into your family home in Dover Heights and you didn't have much and you were scrapping and you were sort of proving to the world that you could be somebody. And I think by every measure, people would say you've become somebody now where David Chain is a name that people recognize. What is success as you go forward in life? What keeps you motivated? I really believe it's, it's about respect, you know, at the end of the day and it's, it's, yeah, and it's your reputation. You know, you know, you can you can make money, um, lots of it, but you can't lose your reputation, not a shred of it. And today, it's unbelievably you know, social media, and that's unbelievably easy to blow a reputation. And yeah, you know, where where I am in my in my life, I'm yeah, you know, 62, 63 this year. The last thing I want to do is is blow what I built over you know, over the last. Yeah, I'd say 35 or 40 years now in my in my life in Australia, and uh, so yeah, to me it's it's about it's about being well respected by not just by yeah you mentioned only because you mentioned Malcolm Turnbull and Dave Gonski. That's yeah, it's it's making sure that people at every level um, are are um, um, yeah respect you, and that's uh, yeah. I always said to my boys. When I die one day, you can put on my tombstone from packer to packer, which meant that I speak to everybody the same, whether whether it's a packer in a warehouse or whether it was James Packer and everybody in between. Because <laughs> I've always believed you treat, yeah, you, you treat everybody um, to treat everybody the same. We've got a few minutes left, Dave, so I'd love to close with a quick rapid fire sprint. Is there one investment you've made that you considered the best in your life, non financial? I'd have to say it's my wife. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. I, I said it in my book. I have three sons, and I always say you can only make one bad decision in your life, and that's who you marry. And I really believe that I would not have the family I have today. I, I don't think I could have achieved what I achieved if I didn't have the unbelievable support of 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 my wife. And uh, and yeah, so that was a uh, one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months. I'd probably like to learn that um, the investments that we made, the value that we provide our founders, that the bulk of them are going to get through these pretty challenging times. That uh, 
yeah, it's a definitely a challenging time for you have to be a founder. Uh, it's, it's challenging to be an investor. You know, when you've got, you know, it's easier to be an investor with capital to invest, which we do have a fund ready to invest. You know, valuations have been reset to more realistic levels. But, you know, what's critical to us is to really make sure that wherever we can um, support our founders to get through these, these, these next few months. One person, a quote that inspires you today? There's, there's, there's a few, and that's only why I'm hesitating. But I'd say probably the one I think is, I think I can attribute it to Jesse Jackson. He said, it's not your attitude, it's your aptitude that will determine your altitude. Mm. And uh, I think that's an awesome quote. And uh, the other quote is, uh, if I can have a second one, is uh, which was from my uncle, but it's not his words. He had, you know, when I was a bit down, having sold the company and, uh, you know, really feeling like I had, I had nothing to do. He looked at me and said, David, to be happy in your life, you need three things. You need someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And I really believe that that's, that's what, you know, it's as simple as that. Mm, fantastic story. Well, that brings us to a close, Dave. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm so glad Wyatt was able to put us in touch and wish you all the best and keep in touch. I really appreciate you having me on the show and I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thanks. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly via email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.